0: Let's get started. Oops. There we go. Who here has heard this quote before? Be in the world, but not of the world. It's a pretty popular quote, right? This one, it drives me nuts. This is the most quoted Bible verse that is not in the Bible. It's, you will not find this phrase, be in the world, but not of the world, anywhere in the Bible. It's not there. Yeshua didn't say this. This is a, this is a Billy Graham quote. So, it's a good one. I have no problem with it. I just wish people wouldn't quote it at me like it was scripture. So, what does this mean, anyway? Be in the world, but not of the world. So, in Billy Graham's context, it means just what it sounds like. As believers of Messiah Yeshua, we're called to live physically in this world, but we need to surround ourselves with the word to protect ourselves from the corrupting influences of the world, kind of like a deep-sea diver who has to wear a pressurized suit to protect him from the, the crushing weight of the water. You know, be in the water, but don't drown. Don't let it drown you. And that's good, but I think sometimes there can be this temptation to take it too far. See, sometimes we inflate our protective suit until it's, it's not a suit anymore. It's, it's, it's a bubble, and now... You know, yes, we're protected, but we can't interact with the world around us in any meaningful way. You know, we insulated ourselves to the point where we are so not of this world that we might as well no longer be in it at all. And that's not good. I don't think that's a good way to li- live. You could live like a monk or a nun and cloister yourself away from the world. What good are we as Yeshua's representatives, if we can't interact with the world that he died to save. So maybe this quote doesn't mean hide yourselves from the world. Maybe it means live with one foot in this world and the other in heaven. All right, what what does that mean? How do we do that? Is there any benefit to trying to live like that? So these are the questions I really want to challenge you with today, and I think we can find the answers to those questions in the life of the man who I want to study today. Today, let's talk about Joshua. So just to let you know what I'm doing here. Uh, all last year, I preached from the weekly Torah readings, and I started to do that again this year. But then I found myself focusing less on the Parsha and more on the people in the Bible— So I started the year with Noah, and then I went to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Judah. And if you want to listen to any of those messages, you can find them on the Simchat Yisrael uh, podcast on our website or on Facebook page. And I I really recommend it because we have so much to learn from our ancestors. And decided, I, I really want to keep going with this theme. So this year, rather than doing a Parsha study, I want to focus on the people of the Bible and what we can learn from them. So I've probably written about like 100,000 words on Moses over the course of all my partial studies. So I decided to jump over him and tackle the next major figure, Joshua. And initially, I was really struggling with Joshua. You know, as I was doing these character studies, uh, you know, I was really enjoying like deconstructing these figures that we know so well. Stripping away the layers of myths surrounding them, revealing the, the complex human beings underneath. You know, the stories of our fathers are so interesting because the patriarchs, for all their greatness, were deeply flawed individuals. I and mean, they really just needed the grace of God to succeed. So even Abraham and Moses made mistakes, you know, lots of them actually. And I found it was their flaws, not their perfection, that I was able to connect with on a human level. Because you know, I'm just human too, right? So if Abraham is perfect, it's hard for me to connect with him. But if he's a human being, with doubts and fears and mistakes, now I have something in common with him. But the problem with Joshua is, he is this guy is a bloody superhero. Now, I read through his book, and the Tanakh has nothing bad to say about this guy. Joshua might be the most wildly successful leader in not just the Bible, but maybe in history. You know, From start to finish, it's a total success story. The book opens with God cutting a covenant of like invincibility with Joshua. God tells him, no one will ever be able to stand before you all the days of your life. God guarantees victory and success and accomplishment for his entire life. And God keeps that promise. The book of Joshua is just filled with landslide victories over every enemy that Israel faces. Joshua, he doesn't even do anything. God just does the fighting for him. God sends the commander of his angelic armies to fight alongside Israel. He uh, causes the walls of Jericho to fall down, and he rains boulders on top of his enemies. He causes the sun to stand still in the sky so the enemies can't flee in the night. And then he, he parts the waters of the Jordan River so the armies can pass through on dry land. If this was a video game, Joshua would be playing on easy mode. You know, if you can, it's, it's, it's a tough book because if, if you can stomach some of the violence, the book of Joshua might actually be the most optimistic book in all the Tanakh. In contrast to the generations that came before and would come after them, Joshua's generation is just remarkably faithful and obedient to God. Joshua doesn't have to deal with any of the rebellion and grumbling that Moses did. Israel, instead, is loyal to God, and they listen to Joshua, and they get along with each other perfectly, and they're rewarded for it with victory over their enemies and a peaceful and easy settlement in the land. This book has a very happy ending with the Jews living peacefully in the land and the entire nation promising Joshua that they will serve God faithfully. This guy is a superhero. He's perfect. the whole book, Joshua never makes a single mistake. He has no flaws, no faults, no failings, nothing for me to pick apart. Oh, man. Or does he? See, Joshua may be a superhero, but all superheroes have origins. You know, Spider-Man, you know, he may be able to you know, sling webs and climb walls, but before he was bitten by a radioactive spider, he was just like the skinny nerd. You now, Captain America, he may have single-handedly won World War II, but before he was given the super soldier serum and cool shield, he was just like the skinny nerd. And the Hulk, he may be the world's strongest hero, but before he was caught in a gamma explosion, he was also a skinny nerd. Okay, I'm seeing a pattern here in Marvel Comics. Let me move on. So the point is, maybe Joshua wasn't always the superhero we see in his book. So today, I want to take a look back into Torah and look at Joshua before he was a mighty hero, back when he was still just like a skinny nerd learning how to be a leader. I want to dive into Joshua's origin story and see how his flaws and his weaknesses didn't hold him back, but instead transformed him into one of the greatest leaders in Jewish history and maybe find out what it has to do with living with one foot in this world and one foot in heaven. So if you have your Bibles with you, we can open up to uh, Exodus 17 and meet Joshua for the first time. So what do we know about Joshua? You know, initially, it's not very much. When we first meet Joshua, uh, Moses is commissioning him to lead a force of fighting men against the tribe of Amalek. And it's strange We you read here. Uh, Joshua doesn't receive any kind of introduction. He's just thrust into the story as if we already know who he is. Then the Amalekites came, and they fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose men. Go out and fight the Amalekites. No introduction at all. It's just like we're supposed to know who he is. Now, much later on in the Bible, in the book of Chronicles, we find out that Joshua is the grandson of Elishama, who, if you know the book of Numbers, was the leader of the tribe of Ephraim. But the Torah seems to intentionally omit this detail because it wants us to focus on Joshua's personality and character rather than on his pedigree. So what do we know about his character? You know, if we're going by the near superhuman way he's portrayed in his book, you would think that Joshua must have been just like the perfect disciple to Moses. He must have been wise and brave and a great leader, right? You know, it's what you think but it's not what we find out. Let's jump to Exodus 32, Joshua's second appearance, and the first time he speaks in the Bible. So this is Joshua's big moment here. We're finally going to learn something about him from his own mouth. You're all familiar with this story. Moses has gone up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And he's been gone 40 days, and while he was away, the children of Israel have made themselves a golden calf to worship. God tells Moses what's going on, and Moses runs down to deal with the situation. On the way down the mountain, he meets Joshua, who had come up the mountain with him, but didn't ascend all the way to the top. So Joshua has been waiting for his master to return. And when he sees him, Joshua runs up to him and says, Moses, Moses, do you hear that? There's a great cry coming from the camp. It's the sound of war. Our people are under attack. But Moses says, that's not the sound of war. It's the sound of singing. So this is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Joshua, this guy who goes on to be one of the most successful leaders ever, the first time he speaks in Torah, he's wrong. He speaks before his master and, and he has to be corrected. You know, it's a strange introduction for a great leader. So let, let, let's keep that in mind and go on and see his next appearance. So, next chapter is Exodus 33. And we find out how God communicates with the people of Israel. So, Moses has a tent that he goes into to talk with God. And since Joshua is his disciple, Moses will bring Joshua into the tent with him. So then God talks to Moses in the tent, and then Moses goes out of the tent, and he tells the people what God told him. And the strange thing we read here is that when Moses would go out to talk with the people, Joshua would stay in the tent. It seems like Joshua is more observing Moses' leadership than doing any leading himself. He gets to see Moses in action, with God and with the people, but Joshua himself, he, he seems very secluded. So God doesn't speak directly to him, and Joshua doesn't speak directly to the people. We don't really get a sense that Joshua is connecting or relating very well to the people here. Now let's jump again to uh, Numbers eleven twenty-eight. This is Joshua's next appearance and the second time he talks in Torah. So this time the situation is Moses has appointed elders over the camp and two of them uh, are prophesying in the camp, you know, kind of without his permission. So when he hears about this, Joshua gets really upset and he runs to Moses and he says, Moses, these guys are prophesying to the people without your permission. You have to stop them. But then Moses says, leave them alone. Why are you angry on my account? I wish God would put his spirit on the entire camp. See, it's pretty incredible. The second time Joshua speaks in Torah. He once again speaks before his master. Once again, he's wrong. Moses has to correct him. So this is an interesting picture that the Torah. is painting of Joshua. So far, he's got like, a pretty bad track record. And the Midrash really picks up on it. In Kohelet Rabbah, the rabbis of the Talmud are worried that the man who will one day lead a nation of 600,000 people, who will be both a military and a religious leader, this guy can't distinguish between the sound of war and the sound of worship. They're concerned that Joshua isn't spending enough time amongst the people, and he isn't relating to them well, and they're worried that he isn't spiritually mature enough for the job. And it just gets worse. So Joshua's next and probably most famous appearance in Torah is the disastrous incident of the 12 spies in the bad report. So Joshua is selected to be one of the 12 men who go into Canaan to spy out the land, along with his friend Caleb. But when they come back, the spies tell everyone that the Canaanites are too strong and they will stand no chance in a fight against them. So the people all start panicking. And then look what happens as as the camp's going into panic here. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should definitely go up and capture the land, for we could certainly do it. Weird. It's Caleb, not Joshua, not the next leader of Israel caleb who speaks up at the moment joshua is silent see in the next chapter joshua finally speaks up and tries to encourage the people but by then it's too late god is already furious with them and the people are so panicked that they want to stone joshua and caleb maybe if he had just spoken up earlier he could have changed things but he doesn't he just stays quiet Now, the Torah doesn't tell us why Joshua is silent. But in the Talmud, the the Ramban speculates that Joshua was initially silent because he wasn't sure whose side he was on. Eventually, he would come around and trust God, but he was scared of the giants too. See, Moses seems to understand that there's this deep sense of fear residing in Joshua. Look at the way that Moses speaks to Joshua when he's passing his authority on to him. He calls Joshua to him and he tells him, be strong. Be courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. And then God gets it on the act. So God commissions Joshua with leadership, but he tells Joshua over and over again, four times in one chapter, Joshua, be strong. Be brave. Don't be afraid. And then it gets even worse. Even the people of Israel get on Joshua's case. So they accept his leadership, but they tell him, we will do what you say, Joshua. Just, just be strong and courageous, would you? So Everyone seems worried that Joshua isn't going to be brave. Otherwise, why would they tell him over and over again? So this does not bode well for Joshua. It makes sense that Moses and God would tell him to be strong. But when the people have to tell their own leader to be brave and strong, do they really have confidence that Joshua can lead them? See, the Talmud doesn't seem to think so. The Midrash teaches that when Moses died, the elders of that generation lamented. And they said, Alas, Moses' face is like the sun, and Joshua's is like the moon. See, the moon is just a pale reflection of the sun. How will Joshua lead the nation when he's just a pale reflection of Moses? So, as the Torah comes to a close, we're left with a pretty grim situation. For all his greatness... Moses always struggled to lead the children of Israel successfully. They questioned his every decision. They didn't trust him. They rebelled against him, and and they rebelled against God time and again. Now Moses is gone, and it's up to Joshua not only to lead these people, but to lead them into the promised land and into war. But Joshua isn't the leader that Moses was. Moses was a son, and Joshua is just the moon. He seems to have everything working against him. But then, we turn the page to the book of Joshua, and we see that the opposite is true. Joshua was a wildly successful leader. And more than that, the the stiff-necked grumblers of Moses' day, they seem to have transformed into a nearly perfect generation. Throughout the whole book of Joshua, the people virtually never sin. And what's even more amazing, the people never complained to Joshua. The same people who made Moses tear out his beard with all their whining, they they never complain. Is this even the same group of people? It's astounding. Even when Israel suffers, it's one and only defeat. When they battled against the city of Ai in chapter 7, even then, they don't come running to Joshua complaining. What happened? We just saw that Joshua had all these flaws. How is it that he is not only an effective leader, but he's an even more effective leader than Moses. See, this is the great thing. The story of the Jewish people has always been the story of how God uses the most unlikely people to do the greatest things. See, there were plenty of other candidates to take over from Moses. Maybe the zealot Pincus or the courageous Caleb. But instead, God chose Joshua because he knew he could transform Joshua's weakness into his greatest strength. So maybe the people never came running to Joshua. The reason that they display such confidence in him is because they can trust that Joshua understands their fears and their concerns because he feels them too. Maybe Joshua was a great leader because he was a man who had one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. Let's look back at the instance with the spies and I'll show you what I mean there. When the spies bring back a bad report, Israel basically divides into two different factions. So Moses and Caleb are firmly on the side of taking the land. And meanwhile, everyone else, the ten bad spies and presumably the rest of Israel, they were on the side of staying right where they were. So we got one side, one side. The only one who didn't take sides was Joshua. He didn't leap to Moses' defense or throw in his hat with the bad spies. Instead, he listens to both sides. He takes both arguments into account, and after bringing it to God in prayer, he decides to trust in God's promise. See, Joshua is a man who stands in both worlds. He feels the fear of the people, but he also has the faith of Moses. And he can combine those traits and become a man who understands fear, but doesn't allow it to rule him. And this is what makes him such a powerful leader. And you know, we see this style of leadership again after the failed battle of Ai. So this, the situation there was that one of the Israelites had sinned and he had taken something that belonged to God that he wasn't supposed to. And so God withdrew his favor from Israel. So Israel went into battle with the city of Ai and they, they lost badly in their first time. So... When it's over, you think this will be the point where the people will come running to Joshua and say, Get us out of here! How are we ever going to, be able to beat the Canaanites so we can't beat one little city? But they don't get a chance to, because Joshua beats them to it. Before they can even have a chance to grumble, Joshua is already on his face before God, asking for help. So let's look at this prayer. Joshua says, Alas, Adonai Elohim, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan? Is it to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? If only we had been content and dwelt beyond the Jordan. Okay, think about this. Does this sound familiar? Who does Joshua sound like here? He sounds a lot like the children of Israel after the spies, doesn't he? He's using the exact same words and he expresses the same fears that they do when they're afraid. But then Joshua continues. Oh My Lord, what can I say now? Now that Israel has turned its back before its enemies. For when the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land hear of it, they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So now, now who does Joshua sound like? See, now he sounds like Moses, pleading with God to remain with his people after they sinned. Joshua is a man who stands in both worlds. He understands both the people and Moses. He can sympathize with Israel, share in their anxiety and their concerns, but then he also has that same powerful faith as Moses. And he can bring those fears, and he can lay them at God's feet. The children of Israel don't have to complain to Joshua, because they know that he's worried about the same things that they are, and he's taking care of them. They trust Joshua, and they're willing to follow him, because Joshua is one of them, and they know that he has their back. When the Talmud says that Moses is the sun and Joshua is the moon, yes, that means Joshua is in some ways less than Moses. But the thing is, you can look at the moon, but you can't look at the sun. Joshua was accessible and relatable to the people in ways that Moses never was. See, Moses spoke to God face to face as a man talks to his friends. Moses' face shone so brightly that the people actually couldn't stand to look at him. He had to he had to wear a veil when he was around them. So no wonder the people couldn't relate to him. Moses was a man who stood with both of his feet in heaven. The rest of Israel still had their feet all the way down on earth. But Joshua, he had one foot in heaven and the other down on earth. He had a powerful faith in God and a deep connection with his people because he understood and lived in both of those worlds. He was able to lead his people into God's promise. So, you know, this idea of Joshua having one foot on earth and the other in heaven, it isn't just my idea. It's confirmed in Scripture. The book of Joshua spends a lot of time portraying Joshua as the new Moses, and there are striking similarities between their lives, but there are subtle differences. So we all know the story of Moses at the burning bush, right? When he approached God told Moses, come no closer. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Well, Joshua had a similar experience. One time before a battle, he encounters the commander of God's army, and the angel tells him, take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you are standing is holy. See, it sounds the same, but the difference is, that the rabbis point out, that Joshua was told to only remove one of his sandals. See, in the Bible, the wearing of shoes is meant to represent our connection to human nature. That's why when we say the kedusha during the Amidah, we raise up on off of our feet to symbolize breaking away from our bodies to enter heaven. When Moses stood before God, he took off both of his sandals because Moses lived completely in God's world. He stood with both of his feet in heaven. But God tells Joshua, leave one sandal on. You're going to need it. And I think as we walk with God, I think we need to keep our sandals on as well, at least one of them. We should never become so holy that we lose the ability to reach out and relate and understand other people. Yeshua never did. As closely as he walked with God, closer than any man, closer than even Moses, Yeshua always kept one foot on the ground. Yeshua never distanced himself from people or detached himself from a world that was too sinful for him. He ate with the sinners. He touched the lepers. He visited the homes of tax collectors. He gave living water to the Samaritans. And there were people who criticized him for it, and they called him a Sabbath-breaker and worse. But much like Joshua, he knew that light shines brighter out in the open than it does under a basket. And our feet can walk the path of righteousness better when one foot is on the ground. And Shema shalom, everyone.